All right, Shabbat Shalom. Our, our experiment continues. We've, we've done, uh, I think this will be the, the third week we're doing the podcast uh, where all of these are recorded if you can't uh, be a part of it live. Uh, this morning, we, we've got you know a dozen or so folks here in person. Um, there's a handout as well. And uh, some folks joining us online. Uh, I would encourage you uh, in, in future weeks, uh, we may not give you the option. Um, we might say you must do it by Zoom. I don't know what that decision is going to be. Uh, but certainly I would encourage you to uh, go online, um, use the Zoom, figure it out sooner rather than later. <laughs> That's, that's, that's all I can say. So uh, right, right behind me is the Torah blessing. Let's jump right into it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Maybe next week I'll figure out I can position that a little bit better so that you'll see it online too. Um, or you can look it up. It's it, you know Google <laughs> blessing for Torah study, and it'll be it'll be the first result. So we 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 start a new masechet this morning, a new tractate of of the of, of the Talmud, and we started the Talmud with brachot, blessings. Now we're going to Shabbat. There is an overarching order to the Talmud. So where did we start with, uh, does anybody remember at the very beginning when we first started with brachot? What's that? The rules, wasn't it? Well, the whole Talmud is rules. But said the prayer first. Said which prayer? Which prayer first and... Hello, Rabbi Mark. Hello. Okay, I can hear you now. That's good. So, so we're. I'm not sure how to. I might be able to share my screen. I wonder if I can figure that out. Um, let me hold off on that. I will say to, today, if you go to safaria.org, are you near a computer? I can't really hear it. You can't hear me? An alternative. I can hear you. I can hear you. I can't hear you. Um, let's work on that for next week. So for, for, for this week, uh, if, you're, if you're following along from home, the, the, the best thing to do would be to go on to safaria.org. Uh, click on Talmud, scroll down and click on Shabbat, and we're starting at the beginning of Shabbat, which is 2a. The Talmud always begins on page two, every, every tractate. Uh, page one is I, like a cover page, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll have to go and find an original copy of the Vilna Shas and figure it out. Uh, so at the beginning of Brachot, we did start with the order of blessings, and we started with uh, the Shema. Does anybody remember... What's that? 
Gwen, did you say something? All right, we'll work on that. We will, so we started off with brachot, which is all of the blessings. And we started off specifically with the Shema. And which Shema? There are two Shemas. There's a morning and an evening Shema. Which one did we start with? The evening. So there's, because that's the beginning of our day, exactly. There, the organization of the Talmud uh, starts with the general and goes to the specific. It doesn't always work. I'm talking about the large overarching structure. There are lots of little structures as we've seen in different passages. It can change uh, very quickly uh, between different styles. There can be a little story. There can be you know, a, a parable. Uh, there can be a, a list. There are all sorts of different things that happen inside uh, a page of Talmud. But there is an overarching uh, uh, structure to the, the way that it's organized. And why does it start with brachot, with blessings? Because we say blessings every day. There are many, many opportunities to say blessings throughout every single day. I can hear it. I, I, I've got him. So we've talked about, we've talked about uh, sort of our daily things, and now we're going to talk about, uh, and they apply to everybody. Now we're going to talk about the the next most common thing, which is Shabbat, which happens. You all right, Rod? <laughs> which <laughs> which happens uh, just once a week. So we're going from the more common to the still pretty common. Shabbat happens every week. So these are going to be all sorts of issues related to Shabbat. Now, if your interest is in understanding, the big question of the Talmud is, what does God expect from us? Right? Uh, and there, there are several you know, subtopics under that, which is what do we expect from God? You know, that factors in there somewhere too. But if your big question is what does God expect from us? And you're talking about Shabbat. What do you imagine would be the topic you might want to start with? What do you do or not do on Shabbat? What do you do or not do on Shabbat? Uh, they're first concerned with what do you not do. Uh, that, as far as I can, as far as I can tell, that's a, an issue that's that's related to, um, you know, you want to make sure that you do the observance correctly, but you also want to make sure, even more than that, that you don't violate Shabbat, because in the minds of the rabbi and and, and according to the Torah, anybody who violates Shabbat, it says in the Torah. Uh, should be kicked out of the community uh, or, or, or even stoned to death. That's, that's the punishment for violating Shabbat. That's what it says in the Torah. Pretty serious stuff. So let's make sure nobody violates Shabbat uh, first. There are, there are, this is still just some background, there are 39 malachot, 39 acts of labor that uh, the rabbis uh, identified, the rabbis of the Mishnah, identified as, as prohibited acts on Shabbat. How did they arrive to this? Maybe we'll find out in a, in a future week. 
Uh, for now, it's enough to know that there are 39 specific types of activities that are forbidden on Shabbat. So we'll start at the top of the list. Shabbat 2a. Today, we're, we're, we're just going to read the Mishnah, which again is the, the earlier part of the Talmud. It's, it's much shorter. It's much earlier. Uh, this is... This is uh, first, second century, uh, that most of this was, was composed and compiled by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi in the, in the uh, th- second century or third century. I'm getting mixed up now. Um, a long time ago. The, the rest of the Talmud is, is uh, composed and compiled much later, like 500 years later, give or take. So, I'm, yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, 10 years. It's hundreds of years that, that the, the entire Talmud is, is composed and put together. So today we're just looking at the Mishnah, and every, uh, every part of the Talmud starts with the Mishnah and then continues with the Gemara, which is commenting or asking questions about the, the Mishnah. So today we're just do, we're just doing the Mishnah because I, I think that that's going to take us the whole time, uh, let alone the the uh, detailed questions that the rabbis get into. So we're trying to figure out what are the rules, what do we have to do, how do we make sure we're not violating Shabbat? That's the question that's in the rabbis' minds. What is what does God expect of us, and how do we make sure we're doing it right? Um, I'm going to read because I'm going to be stopping pretty often instead of taking a volunteer to read today. Shabbat 2a. Mishnah. The act of carrying out from a public domain into a private domain or vice versa, which are prohibited on Shabbat, are primarily two basic actions that comprise four cases from the perspective of a person inside a private domain and two basic actions that comprise four cases from the perspective of a person outside in a public domain. Okay, this is already a little bit hard to untangle. So let's spend, let's spend some time with this. Uh, first of all, if you look at this page just at a glance, you notice that there's, there's uh, more text that's not bold then there is text that's bold. The bold text is what's actually written word for word in the Talmud. The uh, unbold text is the, the uh, Steinsaltz, uh, Rabbi Aiden Steinsaltz commentary uh, that fills in the, the logical gaps, that fills in the, the technical terminology uh, that gives the, the context that we need to understand. Um, and you can see it's, it's doing a lot of work for us, and even with lots of commentary. I'm going to read that in a second without the commentary, and you'll see how far it takes us, even though it still doesn't make any sense. If we're just reading it straight out of the Talmud in Aramaic, or in, in, in Hebrew, the Mishnah's in uh, Hebrew. Uh, Mishnah, carrying out on Shabbat, two that comprise four inside and two that comprise four outside. Now that really doesn't make sense, right? That makes, what do you do with that? 
because there's a lot of technical terminology and some of these, these ideas are clarified. The, the Mishnah, as it was written, uh, was oral Torah. This was taught by word of mouth from teacher to student. It was memorized. Uh, the Mishnah is short enough. You could memorize the entire Mishnah if you were so inclined. Uh, I don't know anybody who's ever memorized the Mishnah, but you could do it. I've, I've met uh, two people in my life who memorized the entire Torah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, who, who were bro both great teachers of Torah. Like these are people who taught rabbis. Uh, so it is possible to do if you're so inclined. Um, and it's possible to memorize the Mishnah, which is sort of a similar scale. Uh, memorizing the Talmud, I, I think that's probably impossible. It takes seven years just to read it from beginning to end, let alone memorize it. I don't know how you would do that. So there are a lot of mnemonic devices in the Mishnah. That's what this is. It's a mnemonic device. All right, so if you're thinking about, okay, what are the rules for carrying, which is one of the, the prohibited activities, carrying from one place to another. You're, you're, you're not allowed to, you know, uh, transfer objects, but you know you can't take something from your house and bring it out, or bring something outside and bring it into your home. That type of thing uh, is one of the uh, 39 malachot, one of the 39 prohibited acts. So, if you're trying to remember what your your what the prohibition is, this is the mnemonic, and you can imagine uh, students like reciting this and trying to memorize it. Carrying out on Shabbat, two that comprise four inside and two that comprise four outside. It's a mnemonic device. Then we're going to expand that. So what does that mean? We're talking about carrying. This is a category of prohibited activity. And the mnemonic is that there are two actions that are four cases from the perspective of the person inside and vice versa. Two, from the perspective of a person outside, uh, two cases that are four actions. Um, or two actions that are four cases, rather. Um, what are the actions and what are the cases? What do I mean by actions? What do I mean by cases? That's going to be explained a little bit. The rabbis actually, if, if we were to continue reading the next couple of pages, they argue about uh, what are the two? Are they referring to actions, cases? What are these, these four? What are they referring to? The conclusion is that the two refers to two basic actions. We'll see what those are in a moment. Um, and then the four specific cases, depending on your perspective. The Mishnah elaborates. Thank goodness. How do these eight cases take place? In order to answer that question, the Mishnah cites cases involving a poor person and a homeowner. Okay. The poor person stands outside in the public domain, and the homeowner stands inside in the private domain. So you're imagining, okay, let's imagine a scenario where uh, I know, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, I know if I pick something up, in my house, and I take it outside of my house, that's a prohibited act. But the rabbis are interested in the marginal cases. Again, 
it helps me a lot to think about sports. if you're not a sports fan, maybe there's another metaphor. but you know you watch the instant replay, and there's discussions, ok, his toe was over the line, but his other foot was not touching, and freeze frame and go back. we want to figure out those if it's clear, if it's an obvious case, there's no there's there's no need to analyze it, right? There, everybody can tell, ok, I'm thinking football. He's in the end zone. You know, home run, okay, it's over the wall, uh, you know, whatever the case might be. Um, you know, that's, that's an obvious case. We're not so, so interested in discussing that. There's not a lot to discuss. It's the cases where it's marginal that people discuss, not just in the instant replay, but they'll be discussing it all week long. Again, I'm thinking football, you know, you have a big game every week, um, and, and, you know, the whole week, you'll hear people saying, oh, "I can't, you know, I can't believe they they, you know, called that penalty when clearly his arm was, you know, turned a certain way." I don't know, whatever. That's sort of the mindset that the rabbis are in here. They're, what is the marginal case? So if I know that it's, all right, I'm getting some weird sound here. Anyway, so we know. In an obvious case, if, if I pick something up and carry it outside my house, that's a prohibited act. But what if I pick something up and I don't carry it outside the house, but I hand it to you and you take it? Now we have an interesting case. So first of all, is the act prohibited? It seems like it should be. It seems like that should be against the rules. And just as importantly, is it my fault or your fault or both or neither? That's what, that's what the rabbis are trying to figure out. That's all in the background of this, this you know, uh, dozen or so words at the beginning of the Mishnah. So this is, we, we did introduction to Talmudic reasoning. This is like, Talmudic reasoning, you know, 201, right? This is the, the, the mindset that Talmud is teaching us a way to think about things, right? So here's the scenario that we're going to imagine. The poor person is standing outside. The homeowner is standing inside. The poor person lifted an object in the public domain, extended his hand into the private domain, and placed the object into the hand of the homeowner. So the uh, example that's brought a little bit later on in the Talmud is, you know, uh, what about a basket? Okay, I've got some bread in my house. There's a poor person outside. They're starving. He's got a little basket, and he's collecting food to eat. Right? We don't want... Uh, the rabbis never mention why they chose this scenario. It's presented as though, oh, this is just a, you know, a commonplace thing. It's, it's, a, it's a good example. It's a scenario you can imagine. Uh, they never mention the fact that fundamentally there's something else going on here. That you know, I've got the bread. The hungry person is outside, and I want to help. And he certainly wants to help, or she. I don't know. Uh, just about everybody in the Talmud is male. I can't help that. Um, in this case, gender does not play a factor. Uh, often it does, but that's another discussion for another day. 
uh, and it's a mitzvah, right? How can I celebrate Shabbat when I know that there's a person standing outside my home that's starving? That's the dilemma. There's a, this, the whole thing today is going to be a lot of technical analysis of, you know, what's placed where. But you've got to remember that this is, you know, fundamentally, this is, I want to help somebody. I want to be able to help somebody. And the rules of Shabbat seem to be preventing me from being able to do that. There's a, a disconnect there that the rabbis are sensing even though they never articulate that in the Talmud, they never articulate that this situation is bothersome. They just present it like, okay, here's a scenario, here's an example you can imagine. But surely, that's the essence of this, that it's how can a rule that God gives us prevent us from helping a poor person to eat? That doesn't make sense. So let's figure this out. There must be a way, there must be a way that I can, can feed the poor person who's standing outside my door, right? Okay, so first, first scenario. <clears throat> uh, remember, we're going to have eight scenarios, so stay with me. So the first scenario, the poor person lifted an object in the public domain, imagine it's a basket for the sake of argument, extended his hand into the private domain, you know, reached into my, my doorway, window, whatever, uh, and placed the object into the hand of the homeowner. Okay, so I'm in the house. The poor person says, here, can you, can you put some bread in here? And I take it. Placed it into my hand. I don't know why in, in, in my example I'm the homeowner and not the poor person. It could just as easily be reversed. <coughs> Excuse me. In this case, the poor person performed the prohibited labor of carrying from the public domain into the private domain in its entirety. That's all in the commentary. Thank goodness we have the commentary. Or another scenario, right? So he picks it up, reach, <coughs> excuse me, let me get some water. So, in this case, <clears throat> the poor person picked up the basket, reached in, and set it down, set it down into my hand. So, <coughs> gosh, that's a pretty clear-cut case. <clears throat> or imagine... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> the poor person reached his hand into the private domain, took an item from the hand of the homeowner, and carried it out into the public domain. So I've got a piece of bread. He reaches in, picks it up, takes it out, and now he has it. That's another pretty clear-cut scenario. <clears throat> it's allergies. <laughs> <laughs> 
What's that? There's the pollen has been insane this month. Um, it's been wild, um, and I forgot to take my uh, um, uh, I just switch. I I was taking Claritin and that stopped working, and then I switched to a, a different one that was working. Zyrtec, yeah. Which has been working a lot better, but I forgot to take it today. All right. So, uh, or the poor person reaches hand into the private domain, took an item from the hand of the homeowner, and carried it out into the public domain. In that case, two, the, the, the poor person performed the prohibited labor of carrying out from the private domain into the public domain in its entirety. So those are the two uh, uh, um, scenarios, right? <clears throat> in both of these cases, because the poor person performed the prohibited labor in its entirety, he is liable and the homeowner is exempt, right? If I've got bread in my hand and he reaches in and takes it, I haven't transferred anything between, between domains. <clears throat> the Mishnah cites two additional cases. In these, the prohibited labor is performed by the homeowner who is in the private domain. The homeowner lifted an item in the private domain, extended his hand into the public domain, and placed the object into the hand of the poor person. So this is the same thing, just reverse. So you take the bread, put it out. The poor person didn't do, they just held out their hand. They didn't transfer anything. The entire action was the homeowner, uh, which is what's going to say. In this case, the homeowner performed the labor of carrying out from the private domain into the public domain in its entirety. Or the homeowner reached his hand into the public domain, took an object from the hand of the poor person, and carried it into the private domain. Again, picture the basket. You know, he's, uh, I, I see someone holding the basket. I reach out, take the basket. In that case, the homeowner performed the labor of carrying from the uh, public domain to the private domain in its entirety. In both cases, because the homeowner performed the prohibited labor in its entirety, he is liable and the poor person is exempt. So now we have four of our, of our eight scenarios, <clears throat> right? There are four additional cases where neither the homeowner nor the poor person performed the labor in its entirety, and therefore neither is liable. Aha. So now we, we, we have, you might call it a loophole. The rabbis are not looking for loopholes. They're trying to feed the poor, right? There must be a way. God would not leave us in a situation where I can't feed a starving person on Shabbat. Uh, this is connected with all of our holidays, by the way. You know, we just had Purim. One of the great Purim traditions is Mishloach Manod, giving uh, uh, gifts of food. Because why? You want to make sure that everybody can celebrate. How can I celebrate Purim and be happy when I know that there are people in the community that, that don't have food, that don't celebrate? We do it in a very uh, uh, in a phenomenal way on Purim, which is you give gifts to everybody. You don't say, are you needy, are you poor? You just give, give gifts of food to everybody you know. I wish we did this more in Reformed communities. Um, if you go in an Orthodox community, everybody is giving and getting Mishloach Manot. 
uh, or Shalach Manos. If you're Orthodox, you'd probably say it like that. You grew up in an Orthodox community, yeah? Shalach Manos? <laughs> yeah. Um, everybody did it, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I wish I wish we did better with it. Um, we we do a poor job with this in in the reform community, unfortunately. Uh, but it's it's a wonderful way of making sure everybody gets to celebrate, and you don't have to uh, single anybody out or embarrass anybody uh, by saying, "Okay, you're you're needy. I know you can't afford food, so I'm getting this." You, because everybody's getting and receiving food, right? It's a very nice way to do it. Same thing. Passover is coming up. One of the obligations of Passover, why do, you, why do you go out and invite everybody you know to your Seder? We do an okay job with this. We do a pretty, pretty okay job with this. Um, uh, because you, you, how can I celebrate the Seder if I know that there are people out there that, that don't have a Seder to go to, right? Same idea. So how can I celebrate Shabbat? How can I eat my, my, my challah, my bread on Shabbat, knowing that there's somebody that doesn't have any challah? Knowing there's somebody who doesn't have any food, who's, who's, who's starving. So that's the, the fundamental question. The rabbis, the, the presumption underneath all of this is there must be a way to do it. God would not leave us in a situation where we can't feed a poor person because of these rules of Shabbat. We want to follow the rules, but we know that God must have made a way for us to do it. It's inconceivable, right? So, <clears throat> how do we do it? Here's, here's the solution. The poor person extended his hand into the private domain, and either the homeowner took an object from his hand and placed it into the private domain, or the homeowner placed an object into the hand of the poor person, and the poor person carried it out. In those cases, and the two that follow, the act of transferring the object from one domain to another was performed jointly by two people, the poor person and the homeowner. What's the difference in this scenario? I put my hand out, and then a basket appears in my hand, and I bring it into my house. I didn't pick anything up. I didn't do the act of picking up. I just did the act of bringing in. Uh, and then you know, how do I transfer it back? You know, I can put some bread in the basket and then I hold it out and let go and it happens to land in the hand of the poor person. You know, I, I didn't put it in, or I, I didn't uh, carry, it. carry it. I just, you know, pla placed it in, in, in uh, no. Vice, vice versa. You know, uh, we do talk about later on in the Talmud, there is a discussion of when intent matters. Um, in, in this case, it's not really discussed. But that is, that is relevant. Uh, you know, what if you started doing something before Shabbat? The example is baking bread. What if you started baking a loaf of bread before Shabbat? Uh, and and you realize after it's Shabbat that it's still in the oven. You can imagine such a scenario. What do you do? Because you're not allowed to take it out of the oven. 
but you can't leave it in there. Yeah, Shabbos Goy. Right. Um, in in this, you can't assume a, 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 a Shabbos goy because this is you know if you've got a community where where everybody's Jewish, which which was the experience of the rabbis, then then um, you know how do you how do you deal with it? Um, so if if uh, so I take the basket, I put the bread in the basket, and I hold out my hand, and then the poor person takes it. I, I think I said it backwards before. That's the scenario. I hold out my hand, and then the poor person takes the basket with the bread in it. I didn't place it in their hand. I just held out my hand, and then the basket disappeared. I didn't have uh, uh, control over what happened once I held out that basket. Uh, in this case, you know, the intention is irrelevant. Uh, why? Probably because if the intention is relevant, then there's no way around it. But the rabbis need a way around this because it's inconceivable that God wouldn't give us a way to do it. <clears throat> there's, there's, there's a phrase that applies more to, you know, modern halachic problems. Um, than, than uh, talking about the Talmud, but uh, there's, there's a phrase where there's a halachic will, there's a halachic way. Yeah. That uh, in, uh, we, we, we discuss halacha, we discuss you know, Jewish law as though it's this, this rigid, immutable thing, it's written in stone. Um, but the reality is that, that it does change and adapt to circumstances and that when there really is you know, a necessary force uh, for something to happen, it happens, uh, or or vice versa. And, uh, yes. Okay. That's a good segue to my question. So, in Jewish law now, yeah. um, there's Arabs. Yes. So, where does Right. So there, there are two big things uh, there. First of all, what is an Eruv? Where does it come from? And then how does that play into modern life? That's a whole other issue um, uh, entirely. So let me take the first question first. Uh, an Eruv 
is, is a physical boundary that is a, a, a way of, of uh, defining, halachically, defining in Jewish law a, an extended private domain. So let's say it's, it's Shabbat morning, and uh, you know, I want to go to to uh, temple, and uh, I want to carry my my talis with me, my talit, right? Uh, I can't show up at services without a talis, but I can't carry it from a from my home to public and then into into the synagogue. So there's there's a way to define it's a it's a physical boundary, usually uh, just a wire. Um, there's, there's no limit to how small the boundary can be, but it does have to be a physical boundary uh, that, that imitates a, a walled community, right? If you imagine a city with a wall around it and you say, okay, everyone in this city, this is one domain. It's, you know, interchangeable everything within this city. Now, imagine, you know, there are gates to this city and uh, you make the gates bigger and bigger and bigger, and the walls get thinner and thinner and thinner, eventually you're left with a, a wire hanging on like posts. That's, that's the essence of an Eruv. And there's, there's a whole other tractate of Talmud called Eruvin um, that deals with, not, there, there are different types of Eruvin. Uh, um, usually when we say Eruv, we're talking about the, the boundary around the town, but there are other, um, processes that are also called Eruv that have to do with uh, passing between domains or passing between times, uh, but that's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother discussion. Uh, so that's the halachic solution in a Jewish community. You have an Eruv around the town and then you can carry uh, under, under appropriate circumstances, you can carry within that Eruv. Um, so if the poor person is there, uh, I can, it's, it's not transferring between domains because we're both in the same domain if I hand it out of my house into the hand of, of, of the poor person. Um, that also means you know, there's still a boundary because what if you live at the edge of the Eruv and there's somebody outside the Jewish community, there's still a boundary that you have to deal with. Um, How that emerged, I, I, I don't know. I wish I, I wish I could answer more completely in terms of, uh, you know, is that a, does, does the Talmud create this? Is it something that happens later? I don't know. Uh, in terms of constructing an Eruv. There's also the, the, the modern issue. Uh, when a Jewish community wants to establish an Eruv, um, you know, there, there, you, you have to meet certain codes. Uh, and because you're talking about putting in, in, you know, telephone poles essentially and, you know, connecting wires. And so, you know, you have to have the cooperation of the city um, to, to do this. It's, it's an unobtrusive thing. It's not uh, physically causing problems for anybody. Uh, but we live in a, a, a nation and in a world where there is a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. And it's, it's often expressed in, in you know, diagonal ways. It's not direct, 
so people, uh, communities that want to establish an Eruv so that they can have a Jewish community that, that functions uh, uh, you know, optimally so that I can carry my talit to, to, to shul, um, often run into big problems with, with the city because they say, we don't, we're not going to allow you to put in an Eruv and it's our right as the city to say no, which is true. Uh, and they come up with all sorts of reasons. Well, you know, you don't have the right permits, or um, you know, it's it's uh, going to interfere with, you know, this other thing. Uh, sometimes there's no excuse. Sometimes they say we don't want you to do it, and you're not going to. Uh, this is a far more common occurrence than uh, I think a lot of Reformed Jews realize because it's not an issue that we deal with. But this is anti-Semitism. The reason is, if you establish an Eruv, then more Jewish people will move to the community. And it's the same types of things that you, you, you hear said about you know, uh, uh, African Americans or Hispanic Americans coming to a community say, oh, well, if they come here, uh, it's going to affect our property values, and you know they're they're uh, <clears throat> they're going to open uh, uh, businesses that are the, the wrong kinds of businesses, and you know they're they're you know going to have these these you know strange customs, and they're going to come in and they're going to you know mess everything up, and they're not going to follow you know the the unspoken rules of our community. It's it's anti-Semitism. <clears throat> Isn't it also segregation? <coughs> We're segregating ourselves? Excuse me. This is the first time I've ever heard of this concept. Uh, yeah. So it's new to me. It's, but like I said, it's... Cluster ourselves. Um, or maybe I'm... The, the I'm essence of... This. No, that's... <clears throat> I try, in my mind, I try to separate between... Uh, issues within Judaism uh, and issues that have to do with relations between the Jewish community and, and the non-Jewish world. Um, so there are two, two aspects of that. On the one hand, um, within the Jewish community, I think it's problematic. Uh, many traditional Jewish laws and many interpretations of traditional Jewish laws require that we are in um, close, isolated communities. Uh, because, fundamentally, because you have to be able to walk to synagogue. So if everybody has to be within walking distance of the synagogue, so that means a very close, uh, uh, geographically close community. Uh, when you have a geographically close community that, that tends to, in most cases, mean isolation, and I think that isolation is problematic. There are other Jews that think isolation is not problematic, that that's the ideal, that that's not an unfortunate outcome, that that's, that's a, a, a benefit of these laws. Thank goodness we have these laws to keep our communities close. Um, and, you know, there's, there's something to be said to living in a close community that's like a, a large extended family, uh, which many Orthodox communities function like a large extended family, and there are benefits to that. There, are, I think, the issues with it, uh, uh, that type of living, are are 
great are, I think the, the problems are greater than, than the benefits, personally. Where, That's my opinion. Um, you don't get, you know, basically the world is more large than that. Um, yeah. Right. I grew up in the <laughs> Yeah. Turned over the years to a very from, which means very ultra orthodox yeah. community. So it was always very Jewish. There were more Jewish people. I mean, we went to school, and in my day, we didn't put up Hanukkah menorahs. Even though hmm. 90% of my elementary school was Jewish, we still put up Christmas trees. Hmm. You know, it was, it was a different generation, a yeah. different era. Um, but now it's completely from, I mean, you know, the house down the block from me was converted to an ultra-Orthodox shul. I went to an Orthodox shul. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Esther Dombray. She's, if you look her up, she, she recently passed away. But okay. she was a, fam- a world-famous lecturer in her own right, even though she was an ultra-Orthodox um, wife of a, you know, I think I do know who you're talking about. She's written several books. Yeah. Books, right? And um, I mean, her name, here I am. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so that was my resident growing up. Oh, wow. Just 
I would encourage people to to experience other ways of living, but to 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 use the the legal system to prevent people from living that way, if that's that's how they want to live in their community, I think every American should be outraged. And I don't think there's any, any you know, I, I, I can say it's anti-Semitic to prevent somebody from putting up an Eruv and living this ultra-Orthodox life and, and not agree with ultra-Orthodox Jews on, on other things. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think that often, uh, uh, Reform and 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 secular and conservative Jews ignore anti-Semitism when it pops up in uh, when it's directed against ultra-Orthodox Jews. We say, oh well, we don't like them either. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but but you know, it's it's um, we say, well, you know, that doesn't affect me. It does. It should affect you personally if if somebody. You know, in 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 you know Brooklyn, who's who's you know from, you might not agree with them on a lot of things, but if they're being targeted because they're Jewish, that affects me. That affects you. That that should be. Yeah. 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 And so it's, I take, I do take it personally because although I don't want to live that lifestyle, I still feel that any anti-Semitism towards the Jews is yeah. still, a, it's, it's still yeah. major anti-Semitism towards me because they're not going to like me either way. Yeah, and I think that's that's the the heart of the issue is that uh, any anti-Semitism should be uh, intolerable. And not just, by the way, to other Jews. I think if we could get all Jews on the same page about that, that would be a good first step. Really, I think the whole world needs to be on 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 the page with anti-Semitism is not acceptable. I think. Um, I'm sorry. I think the code and, word is and New this, York Jew. And this all, People yeah, it, yeah. We well, I, we we. Jew. Exactly. And uh, this is. What's that? Yeah, face similar issues. It has the same kind of dynamic, and I think there's, you know, there's, there's the assumption that certain things are going on in those communities that wouldn't be uh, accepted by everyone, and there's sort of, there's been documentaries that people focus on and kind of blanket the whole community with the negative, which is anti-Semitism, with yeah. things, negative yeah. Yeah. Right. We we can't we can't ignore the issues 
that exist within Judaism. Uh, but if you only focus on the issue, uh, on, on, on the, the problems within Judaism, uh, in particular, from the non-Jewish world, if you're only pointing at, you know, look at all of these problems in the Jewish community, it's anti-Semitism. And uh, as we're going through this tractate of Shabbat, uh, discussing these different sort of technical distinctions, remind yourself this whole discussion about you know relationships between you know the Jewish community within the Jewish community you know between Orthodox this all emerged from a discussion of this very technical issue of passing between public and private domains. So as you're reading this, remember you know this is not just the the uh, it's very easy to I, I, this is my preface as as we continue it's very easy in discussing these sort of technical issues to, to throw up your hands and think, my gosh, who cares about, you know, whether his hand was this way or that way, and, and you know, does it really matter? Is this a matter of, of faith? Is this a matter of real life? Does, is this really what God cares about? Uh, it's very easy to get into that mindset, and it's helpful to remember, uh, yeah, these really do have grave implications often. Uh, I think we'll leave it there. We're not quite at the end of the page, but we got the idea. We got we got to the the essence of it. Uh, it just describes the the, the alternate situation. Um, much of this tractate, I'm told, I'm only eight pages in. Uh, <laughs> much much of this tractate uh, is this style of reasoning of of taking a close look at a, a halachic issue and making sure. We get it right, because again, the fundamental question is, what does God expect of us? And you see the real world, world implications can be tremendous. Uh, we'll stop there for today. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, hopefully I will see you all next week, whether I see you here in person uh, or online on, on uh, Zoom. I'll send out the link and instructions for that as well. Shabbat Shalom. Rabbi, Rabbi, is yes. the term going derogatory?